the Indigenous Connection Show. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Randy Lynn at Sugasin, Mustasini, Nihi Auchini, Lakla Bush, Alberta, Egwatni, Wigan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Indigenous Connections radio show. My full name is Randy Lynn Nanamu Candeline, and a little bit about myself. I'm the eldest of three children. My family originates from the Big Stone Cree Nation, Mastasini um, Nihil, and that is in Treaty 8 territory. However, I grew up in Lakhlebish, Alberta. Uh, I did move away for a bit to get an education and all of that fun stuff. So my educational background is in Aboriginal mental health as well as Indigenous social work which I have a degree in. Uh, I consider myself to be very fortunate given the fact that I had the opportunity to be raised around my culture growing up. And this highly influenced the way I look at the world around me. And obviously it kind of affected my career goals and my educational goals as the path I took was geared towards working with indigenous people. Um, my culture is something I hold very near and dear to my heart. It's been my light into darkness. It's been my way to cope. It's how I identify. It's given me so much. Um, so I'm very honored to have this opportunity to share some of that Indigenous culture with you guys via this show. So each week we will be discussing various topics in regards to First Nations culture anywhere from art, history, ideologies, and spirituality, both from a historical and contemporary point of view. And as you really start to listen to this show, you start to understand how all of those are kind of intertwined. And it's really hard to separate all of those kind of entities. Um, So I always like to mention the reason why I talk from a contemporary point of view is because there's been a misunderstanding, a stereotype that as Indigenous First Nations people are grounded in the past, our culture is historical, but that's not true, that's not fair to say. We are contemporary people, Uh, we are evolving with the times, and yes, our teachings, our beliefs are highly grounded in our culture from a traditional point of view, but We evolve, we utilize the resources available to us. And I think a perfect example of that is our art forms. And you can see how things have evolved and how the mediums we use have kind of differed over the years, depending on the materials that were available to us. Anywho, moving forward, it's in my hopes that by having these conversations with you guys that we can start to create an honest dialogue and complement that with explanations to follow and by doing this I really hope to work towards breaking down stereotypes misunderstandings and building a bridge between indigenous and non-indigenous communities as there's a lot of uh, miseducation and misunderstandings and assumptions out there made by um, a lot of people So it's my host by doing this every week that we can start to kind of break down all of that and work together and moving forward as a society in the spirit of reconciliation. 
So today's topic, I believe, is our 12th episode. I don't know. I don't know who's counting. I'm not. (laughs) I should be, but I really, I don't know how many episodes we're on. Anywho, I think we're on the 12th episode of our Okamau Escuelo series. So stay tuned for that. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are, I believe, on our 12th episode. <laughs> Give or take an episode <laughs> um, of our Okamau Escuelo series. So Okamau Escuelo is loosely translated into boss lady. When I looked it up in the Creed Dictionary, it said chief's wife. And I'm like, nope, nope, not having that. Boss lady. So Okamau, leader, Esquale, lady, woman. Um, so Okamau, Esquale, boom, boss lady series. So this, this series has kind of documented the reality as indigenous First Nations people, our societies are originally a ama- operated in a matriarch style, meaning we hold our women in very high esteem. They are our leaders. Uh, Each and every one of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a woman. Um, She's the only one with the ability to navigate a spirit from the spirit world into this physical one, if she chooses to. Kind of brackets right there. Uh, Anywho, so with that, we have seen throughout history a decline of our matriarch society as uh, Western values have really taken over and the patriarch was kind of forced upon our people and really disrupted our way of life. And what we have seen from that is a kind of downfall of the respect and dignity of our women to the point where there's a clear epidemic in our society where our women are specifically targeted as victims of violence, often go missing and turn up murdered. Um, I believe the statistic is one in four Indigenous women will be the victim of a violent crime in one way or another. And that's very, very alarming to when you consider that one in four women. Um, So we've documented those cases and looked really deeply into why these things are happening and how our society has kind of been designed to, um, what's the word I'm looking for, to kind of allow these things to continue to happen. And it's not just our women, it's our little girls too. Um, So that was kind of hard on the heart. But I think it was a very important conversation to have and to really, really take the time needed to dig deep into these issues as this issue isn't a brand new thing. This has been an epidemic that's been happening since contact. Yet, only in the past few years has it really been brought to life. So I didn't want to end this series in a negative way of, okay, this is all the bad stuff happening to us now and blah 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 so we're kind of curving upwards in our last episode we focused on reclaiming our matriarch and highlighting uh women that have kind of broke the glass ceiling for indigenous peoples indigenous women and putting themselves out there in the forefront of society and becoming these role models in taking on these political roles and becoming the first for many of us um, 
in today's society, there's a lot of firsts for indigenous women, indigenous people, because for so long we have been oppressed and for so long we haven't been allowed to do certain things. And for so long, we weren't even allowed to vote. We weren't even allowed to practice our culture. There's so many contributing factors to why things are the way they are today. So change is a slow progress, but I see it happening. And we are going to continue highlighting those important women that are at the front lines of creating change and making it okay for other indigenous girls and women and peoples to rise through the ranks and claim their those roles in society. And I want to kind of call this portion uh, reclaiming the matriarch society, uh, seeing our women rise to those leadership roles that they were originally intended to fulfill in the first place. But before we go there, I've been kind of doing this new thing where I do current events. So um, recently, I had the opportunity to attend a Missing Murdered Indigenous Peoples honoring ceremony. Um, so May 5th has been deemed the unofficial day that we recognize the epidemic of missing murdered Indigenous peoples. For many years prior to the movement, it's been focused mainly on women and girls, uh, ex including the show, right? But over the years, it's becoming more and more apparent that these issues aren't uh, just affecting our women and our girls, but our trans people, our two-spirited people, our boys and men are also becoming victims of crimes at very alarming rates. And as we fight for inclusion in general society as Indigenous people, we as Indigenous people can't keep excluding the fact that our male counterparts are also suffering in this ongoing issue. So what I really noticed what was different about this year's gathering and just to FYI, we socially distanced, we wore a mask, and it was a very small gathering and I kind of really preferred it that way considering all this stuff going on in society and just trying to keep each other safe so anywho so what was different about this year's event that the iconic acronym of MMIW missing murdered indigenous women has been changed has shifted to MMIP to represent missing murdered indigenous peoples so this can include the family and loved ones of males and trans people and two-spirited people who have also been affected by the ongoing violence towards our people. To, in order to support and validate the fact that their loved ones who have, may go, who have gone missing or may have turned up murdered, their lives mattered as well and they deserve justice just as much as the families of our women and our girls. Um, personally, I believe this is a very important step forward because for the years I have been speaking on this topic, I've always kind of been confronted by individuals uh, asking about the movement and asking why aren't our boys and men being included? Why are they being excluded? Because for many people, this does hit close to home and they have had 
fathers, brothers, sons, cousins, uncles, etc. being ripped out of their lives too. So it's very important that we include everyone and understand that there's a lot of tragedy and negative negative, statistics that are affecting our males as well. Um, Other criticisms that have kind of been brought up since I'm already on the topic about missing and murdered indigenous people's events are kind of the set, no, not celebration, but kind of coming towards the day of May 5th is there are many people who are being triggered and feel the movement has kind of shifted towards being glamorized. And to explain this a little better, so one of the popular things that have been going on throughout the last couple of years, especially as the movement builds more momentum and kind of reaches out to further people, is uh, women dressing themselves up in red dresses. And sometimes people feel these dresses are too glamorous, are too revealing, um, and sexualizing our women, which can be very offensive to some people, given the reality that Um, Many of our missing, murdered Indigenous women girls were the victim of sex crimes, if you will. So they are somewhat offended by the sexualization of this movement. Me personally, I feel that a woman's body is her own and how she chooses to portray her body is her own Um, art is very objective and it's hard to censor it's hard to say what is right and what is wrong um but also some people are kind of upset with the fact that women are painting red handprints on their face and kind of doing glamorous makeup to match just to take you know pictures of themselves and Again, the argument is that it really takes away from the gruesome reality of these crimes and the pain that the loved ones carry with them after the fact that this issue isn't a glamorous one and that people are actually suffering because of our women being attacked and murdered, our men as well. So I can understand how how for those personally affected by the missing, murdered Indigenous peoples epidemic uh, may have had their pain manifest into anger over time and how this outpouring of red dresses and handprints can be triggering to some. Uh, Some have even come forward and said seeing so much red reminds them of the blood of their loved ones and how the handprints actually resemble the physical assaults, the bruises that their loved ones had endured, or maybe they have personally endured. Um, On a personal note, I feel sometimes the movement has been glamorized in a way, Uh, that people may be approaching days like May 5th as photo opportunities, and they're sharing from a place of their ego rather than a place of compassion. 
but I am only human and I also remind myself to take a step backwards and look at the bigger picture. So I also recognize that maybe my own hurt is speaking when I say that and getting defenses, defensive, sorry, and something that so important for me to acknowledge in order to grow that these people that do these things aren't doing it to hurt anyone that and that I guess being a victim of domestic abuse myself I still have my own work to do on myself to understand everything going on so I can personally understand the criticisms of people's efforts but like I said taking that step back I realized that this issue is so huge even look how many episodes it's taken us to get to this point you know and I haven't even covered everything and because of the reality of how huge it is it requires the support of all of us and all the energy it can receive that many people do feel just as overwhelmed as I do um I know Doing these episodes was really, really hard. And I had to take time to grieve what I was learning because it was so overwhelming and triggering. Um, So people are overwhelmed, but they still want to help. And for some people, that helping means dressing up and doing their makeup and taking pics to post as a contribution to this movement. That helps them feel not so powerless and that they are helping. And I can't argue with that. And I have to support that. And I won't ever try to downplay the seriousness of this issue. And that, yes, there is so much work that needs to be done beyond taking pictures and posting pics to social media. But I'm also aware that in order for people to care, They first need to be aware. And if posting pics in red dresses and doing your makeup with handprints on you is starting those conversations with people that may not understand the seriousness of this issue, then all the power to you. Um, So what I'd like to say is continue to contribute to this movement however you are capable of doing so. Rome was not built in a day and these issues will not be solved in a day. Yes, we can criticize each other's work all we want, but what is that going to solve? That's not really going to solve anything. That's just lateral violence in a whole other form. Um, So the issue, this issue is centuries in the making. And to continue to make positive change, we need anyone and everyone to contribute whatever energy they can in whatever form they can to continue to bring awareness. This is going to happen in baby steps. And if right now where we are at with the movement is taking pictures and continuing just to bring awareness to the issue, then I'm okay with that. Because I know in the future we're going to continue building on to that platform that we have already built. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to kind of transition into profiling Indigenous women leaders in our communities and throughout society. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Indigenous Connection Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are continuing on with our Okamawa Square series, Boss Lady. Uh, 
and we are profiling our matriarch. So we're continuing on from last week. Ep- <laughs> yeah, okay. Last week's episode. Oh man. Okay, there we go. Um, and we're kind of talking about women change makers through histories and a lot of firsts. So I want to begin with Wilma Manmake. Ooh, Wilma Mankiller. Okay. I have no idea what's why I'm getting so tongue-tied right now. Wilma Mann Killer uh, was born in 1945. <laughs> ah, 1945 to 2010. I think quarantine's really getting to me, and I I don't know how to talk anymore. <laughs> okay, so Wilma Mann Killer, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, Wilma Mann Killer was born in. Taclia, Oklahoma, I probably said that wrong. In 1945, she was 11 years old. The Bureau of Indian Affairs Reconciliate Relocation Program. Oh my gosh, I apologize. I swear I know how to talk. Okay, the Bureau of Indian Affairs Relocation Program moved Mankiller and her family from the their rural ancestral home in Oklahoma to San Francisco, California. As a teenager, she became involved in San Francisco's Indian Center, assisted and supported the Black Panther Party in its earlier days, and found active inspiration in Native American students' occupation and attempted reclamation of Alcatraz Island. Hey, that would be a fun topic to talk about. Anywho, Man Killer returned to Oklahoma in 1977 and promptly initiated a number of community development projects to benefit her Cherokee neighbors. In 1983, she became Deputy Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation based on the strength of her community leadership. And two years later, when the principal chief resigned, Melon Killer became the first female principal chief of the modern Cherokee Nation. She served 10 years in the role governing the second largest tribe in the United States. Among her change-making contributions as chief, travel enrollment tripled, employment doubled, infant mortality declined, and educational achievements rose according to the Wilma Mankiller Foundation. Mankiller left office in 1995. In 1998, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And quotations, I hope that when I leave it, it will be just as said. I did what I could. Today, the Wilma Mankiller Foundation works with indigenous communities to carry on Mankiller's legacy of social justice and development in Indian country and beyond. Um, and I shared a quote from Wilma Mankiller last conversation, and I just want to share it again because it's really important to me, and I can really resonate with it given my own realities. So this is a quote from Wilma Mankiller. Remember, I am just a woman who is living a very abundant life. Every step I take forward is on a path paved by strong Native American indigenous women before me. And that really resonates with me because I know I wouldn't be able to do the work I do today if it wasn't for the hard work and the sacrifices of my mother. 
and the hard work and the sacrifices of my grandmother and the hard work and the sacrifices of all the beautiful women that have come together in one way or another in my life and have shared teachings with me, shared opportunities with me, shared wisdom with me. You know, I can't claim everything I know without honoring all the people that have come before me and have stepped up and taken it upon themselves to share that with me. So I can really, really resonate with that. And while we're on the topic of people whose stories personally affect me that I feel I can relate to, I want to talk about our first Native American medical doctor, uh, Susan LaFleche Picot. So at just eight years old, Omaha tribe member Susan LaFleche sat at the bedside of a sick elderly woman and waited all night for a physician to arrive and tend to her. By the time dawn broke, the woman was dead, and the message delivered by the doctor's absence was clear. Native Americans don't matter. So LaFleche, born and raised on the Omaha Indian Reservation, made it her mission to care for the members of her tribe. She was educated at a Native American boarding school, aka residential school, and earned her MD from the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania becoming the first Native American woman doctor in history. Heck yes. Then she returned home where she worked tirelessly to serve more than 1,300 patients, both white and non-white, over 450 square miles. LaFleche married Henry Picot, a Sioux Indian from South Dakota in 1894, and later opened a private practice. In addition to providing critical health care to her community, she also advocated for modern hygiene practices and disease prevention standards among the Omaha people. In 1913, Picot opened a hospital near Walt Hill, Nebraska, the first to be built on reservation land without any support from the federal government. The faculty served all peoples regardless of skin color. Now known as the Susan LaFleche Picot Center, it was named a National Historic Landmark in 1993. So as I mentioned earlier, her story really hit home for me. And the reality of her knowing no one is coming to help her people really hit me hard. Personally, my grandfather was shot several times in front of his home with his kids in hiding inside the home on our reserve in Wabaska um, back when my mom was, I believe, seven years old. He knew he had to go outside, so the man who was threatening them outside wouldn't come inside the house and hurt the kids. So he pretty much sacrificed himself for the children. And my grandmother was actually on a business trip at the time, so she wasn't home. It was just my grandfather and the kids. Um, And my mom comes from a family of nine kids. Uh, And she told me that there was her and her younger sister being shielded by their older sister in a closet. Uh, She was using her body to physically protect the kids as their father went outside to confront this man who had brought a gun to the house. Um, and what happened was my grandfather was shot several times in front of the home. And after that, he probably would have went inside the home. But my uncle, who is older than my mom, kind of 
taunted him and led him away into the bush so that he would go away from the house where the younger kids were. Um, My mom, only being really young at the time, she recalls laying beside her father on the road in front of their house as he bled out. And she and him both knew that these would be his final moments uh, because they knew there were no doctors around. And the local doctor, the closest doctors were in Slave Lake in Athabasca, which is still a bit of a distance off. And this was in the 70s, so it wasn't, we didn't have the kind of communication, access to communication and all of that at the time, right? So reality was there was no one close enough to come help. So knowing my own family history and reality that my mom lost her dad that day, my grandfather, due to the simple fact that there was no medical assistance on the reserve at the time close enough to help my grandfather really, really, really helps me appreciate the efforts of Susan so much because she is a prime example of becoming the change we want to see in the world. And I feel that is really the true actions of a hero. And she did not discriminate in her clinic. She opened her services to anyone and everyone. So that's a really beautiful gesture right there. So we'll take a quick break and we'll continue talking about our matriarch women. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Indigenous Connection Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are continuing on with our Okamawa Square series. And we are at that point in the series where we are profiling and recognizing our Indigenous matriarch women throughout history. Um, those women who broke glass ceilings and became the first female Indigenous person to do so, to make it okay for other people do these things today. And before the break, we talked about Susan LaFleche being the first Indigenous Native American medical doctor. And we're going to continue on with that conversation, talking about our medical heroes, especially now during everything that's happening in our society and the tireless effort that our healthcare professionals and people working the front lines that are putting into making each making sure each and every one of us is safe and that we are taken care of as we deal with this ongoing pandemic so recognizing that we'll continue to recognize other healthcare providers um in our first nations native american societies so just like susan lafleche picot before her annie dodge Juanica decided to become a public health advocate after witnessing a tragic event unfold within her tribe. Juanica was only eight and attending a government-run school on a Navajo reservation when an influenza epidemic struck and wiped out thousands of Navajos and their children, including some of Juanica's classmates. Inspired to make change in her community, Juanica worked tirelessly 
tirelessly to improve health and welfare for her Navajo people during her adult life. Having observed firsthand the poverty and disease that plagued the Navajo during her travels through Navajo territory with her father, a chief and national tribal council president, Wanaka studied public health before joining the Navajo Tribal Council herself. During her three terms, nearly 30 years in office, Wanaka served as the chairwoman of the health committee. She also improved care for pregnant women and babies, made quality, regular eye and ear examinations the norm, and improved treatment for alcoholism. She even created an English Navajo dictionary to help define modern health care practices like vaccinations for non-speaking non-English speaking Navajos, which is really important. And she hosted weekly radio broadcasts in Navajo to deliver details of modern medical advancement to her people. In recognition of her remarkable contributions, Wanaka was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1963, the first Native American to receive this prestigious honor. The Navajo Tribal Council officially named the legendary mother of the Navajo Nation in 1984. So thank you, Annie Dodge Wanaka, for your effort of recognizing the services and issues that were confronting your your community in regards to the health crisis of First Nations, Indigenous, Native American people, and stepping up to the plate to address them and to bring services that were accessible to people of English and Navajo-speaking backgrounds. As we got to remember that English isn't the first language for many of our indigenous people, right? Uh, English is a language that was kind of forced upon us, especially in the residential school. And for many of our older people, they kind of missed out on being forced into the residential schools as the residential schools, when they opened, were directed towards the younger children. So thank you, Annie, for the work you have done um, and kind of setting a precedence of how we should confront healthcare in Indigenous First Nations Native American communities. Uh, continuing on with our conversation, we are going to profile Winona LaDuke next. So Winona has been a change maker from the tender age of 18, and she's kind of set an example of how we should conduct ourselves as land and water protectors. She's famously quoted as saying, someone needs to explain to me why wanting clean drinking water makes you an activist and why proposing to destroy water with chemical warfare doesn't make you a terrorist when she addressed the United Nations on indigenous issues at the age of 18. And we gotta remember that many, 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 many First Nations communities, Native American communities in Canada, as well in the United States, do not have access to clean water, even to this day in 2021 we are still fighting to have access to clean drinking water in our communities. And many health issues have arose from the reality that there's no clean water available to these communities. So let's profile Winona LaDuke really quickly here. Winona LaDuke, Native American land rights activist, environmentalist, economic economist, politician, and author, 
Winona LaDuke has spent her career working on a national level to advocate, raise public support, and create funding for environmental groups. A graduate of Harvard and Antioch universities, LaDuke has become known as a voice for Native American economic and environmental concerns around the globe. LaDuke is Anishinaabe Ojibwe, enrolled member of the Mississippi Band of Anishinaabeg. While attending Harvard University, LaDuke met Jimmy Durham, a well-known Native American activist, and her own interest in issues related to Native tribes began. At the age of 18, LaDuke spoke to the United Nations regarding Native American concerns. And that's where she gave that quote. After graduating, LaDuke moved to the White Earth Ojibwe Reserve in Minnesota, where she became principal of the Reservation High School. There, she quickly became involved in a lawsuit to recover lands promised to the Anishinaabeg people by an 1867 federal treaty. After four years of litigations, the case was dismissed, prompting Leduc to found the White Earth Land Recovery Project. The project's mission centers on land recovery, preservation, and restoration of traditional practices and the strengthening of spiritual and cultural heritage. In 1985, she established the Indigenous Women's Network, a group devoted to increasing the visibility of Native women and empowering them to participate in political, social, and cultural processes. The Duke is Program Director of the Honor the Earth Fund, a national advocacy group that seeks to educate and create public support and funding for Native American environmental groups. In 1998, her work has, was recognized by Miss Magazine, which named her Woman of the Year. Four years earlier, she was nominated by Time Magazine as one of the country's 50 most promising leaders under the age of 40. In 1996 and again in 2000, she was a vice presidential candidate, joining Ralph Nader on the Green Party ticket. A mother, a mother of three, the Duke was has written extensively on Native American and environmental issues. So that's pretty cool. She um, ran to be vice president. That's that's actually a really big deal. <laughs> um, but even beyond that, her advocacy work to protect the land and provide clean water and food sovereignty for Indigenous First Nations people, Native American people, has really, really paved the path for the work of our land and water protectors today, such as Miss Autumn Pelchier, a young girl from Ontario who's made it on a global scale, being recognized on a global scale for the work she is doing in order to protect the water. So thank you, Winona Leduc, for all the effort you have put in to ensure and protect our land and water that as human beings regardless of our race our cultures we are all physically dependent on right that we cannot survive without any of those being available to us so thank you again and we'll take a quick break there and we're going to profile a couple more ladies the indigenous connection show 
Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connection Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are continuing on with our Okamawa Esquayo series, profiling different indigenous matriarchs that have been change makers in society throughout the last century or so, and that have broke those glass ceilings so that individuals like myself and yourself and your daughters could rise through the ranks and take on those leadership roles. So we're going to kind of bring it closer to home with this next matriarch. And no other than Miss Tantu Cardinal, who was born just outside of Lacklebish area, uh, Anzac, Conklin area. Um, and she has such an amazing track record in film and media. Um, I swear I can't watch any show about indigenous people without seeing Miss Tantu's beautiful face right there, front and center. Um, she's been such a positive role model and change maker for our people who want to fulfill careers in um, film and media. So I'm really excited to do this profile on her. And she actually starred in a film that was filmed right in Laclavish, kind of in the area where I'm broadcasting from. And who could forget the classic loyalties? <laughs> I remember I had to watch it in university and I was like, oh my gosh, I know them. I know them. I know them. <laughs> but of course, they were all like really young in those pictures. And yeah, okay, let's get to it. <laughs> so, Tantu Cardinal. Rosemary Tantu Cardinal, actor, born July 20th, 1950 in Fort McMurray, Alberta, uh, closer to Anzac. Tantu Cardinal has performed more than 100 film, television, and theater roles and in Canada as well as the United States. She broke barriers for on-screen representation of indigenous peoples and has challenged negative stereotypes of indigenous communities throughout her career, which has involved roles in such as Dances with Wolves, who could forget Dances with Wolves, Black Robe, Smoke Signals, Wind River, and Through Black Spruce, and such TV series as Street Legal, Dr. Quinn Medicine Women, oh, that brings me back, <laughs> North of 60, Moccasin Flats, and Mohawk Girls. She is known for her strong presence, the depth of her performance, and her activism on behalf of the environment. A member of the Order of Canada, she has won a Gemini Award, a Canadian Screen Award for Lifetime Achievement, a National Aboriginal Achievement Award, and many other honors. Tantu Cardinal was born the youngest of four children to Julia Cardinal, a woman of Cree and Métis descent, and a Caucasian father who left when Cardinal was six weeks old. Her grandmother became the children's caregiver when Cardinal was six months old. Cardinal's mother lived in poverty until she died at a young age. Cardinal experienced further family tragedies when her sister was taken during the 60s scoops, which we talked about before, and her brother was murdered at the age of 24. Another issue we've been talking about. Cardinal was raised in the hamlet of Anzac, Alberta. The lack of electricity inspired her to use her imagination while playing in the bush. Whoop whoop. Her grandmother nicknamed her Tantu after the insect repellent they used while picking blueberries together. She thought she taught Cardinal the Cree language, the traditional ways of their culture, and the difficulties she would face growing up Métis in Canada. 
Carmel has said that it was walking behind her grandmother where she first learned to act. Cardinal's legacy is a combination of acting and advocacy. Her career broke down barriers for indigenous actors and has used the power of positive representation to challenge negative images and stereotypes. Cardinal has used her craft to honor the history of indigenous people in Canada. I always felt that as an actor, we have to have the courage to go into the territory of hard experiences and tell the truth of what happened to us as human beings, Cardinal said in 2010. That's where you find understanding. You don't come through generations and generations of genocide and holocaust to be wimps, to be portrayed as monotone and one-sided characters. Ooh. That was a powerful statement. Cardinal is also an outspoken environmentalist. She drew upon her experiencing seeing the changes in Fort McMurray, Alberta, to advocate, advocate against the Alberta oil sands and the contamination of water for resource extraction. In 2011, she was arrested with fellow actors and activist Margaret Kidler while protesting the Keystone XL pipeline outside the White House. Cardinal's legacy has been recognized by many festivals and organizations for her acting and advocacy. She was appointed a member of the Order of Canada in 2009 and holds honorary doctorates from four universities. One, two, three, four. That's pretty dope. In 2017, she received the Earl Grey Awards from the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Televisions. And in 2018, she became the first actor to win the Clyde Gilmer Technicolor Award from the Toronto Film Critics Association that same year. Cardinal was invited to become a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. Man, this woman's a four-time doctorate holder. That's insane. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome, actually. (laughs) I'm just kind of mind blown by that fact. So thank you, Ms. Tantu Cardinal, for all the hard work you have done in portraying Indigenous people in Hollywood, as Hollywood does have a very uh, dark and very unfair portrayal of Indigenous people in throughout the years of the way they portrayed us. So thank you for that, and thank you for breaking down that glass ceiling as we do see a rise of Indigenous actors, which I'm really grateful for. Next, we are going to profile no other than Miss Buffy St. Marie, another iconic Canadian who has made waves in film and music. Buffy is another person that I often see in movies and stuff. Um, She's, you know, I grew up listening to her music. I've had the opportunity to meet her. She's an amazing vocalist. She's got such a power to her voice. She was even on Sesame Street, you know. So we are going to profile Miss Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie, singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, educator, social activist, philanthropist, visual artist, uh, was born 1941, February 20th, on the Pipot Reserve in southern Saskatchewan. A pioneering and influential singer-songwriter, Buffy St. Marie specializes in love songs and music with a political and social activist focus. She was an important figure in the Greenwich Village and Toronto folk folk music revivals in the 1960s and perhaps best known for her 1964 anti-war anthem, Universal Soldier. 
which was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005. She won a Global Globe, a BAFTA, and an Academy Award for co-writing the hit song Up Where We Belong. Who doesn't know Up Where We Belong? That's like such an iconic classical song. A companion of the Order of Canada, she has been inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame, the Canadian Songwriter Hall of Fame, and the Canadian Walk of Fame. Go girl. She has received the Polaris Music Prize and the Governor General Performing Arts, as well as multiple Juno Awards, Canadian Aboriginal Music Awards, Lifetime Achievement Awards, and Honorary Degrees. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Powerhouse, not to be messed with that one. Possibly orphaned, St. Marie was adopted when she was a few months old and raised in Maine and Massachusetts by Albert St. Marie and his wife, Winifred who was part Mi'kmaq. St. Marie graduated with honors in Oriental philosophy and education from the University of Massachusetts in 1963. She moved to New York City to try her luck as a songwriter and made a name for herself performing musically in Greenwich Village, which soon led to playing around the work the world at folk festivals, coffee houses, concert ventures, and in indigenous communities. During this period, she returned to the Pie Pot Reserve in Saskatchewan's Capel River Valley. She was adopted according to tribal custom by Emile Pie Pot and his wife Clara Star Blanket Pie Pot, a Cree family believed to be related to her biological parents who she never knew. St. Marie's strong stance on indigenous issues and against the Vietnam War made her unpopular with the Johnson and Nixon administration in the United States. As a result, her music was blacklisted from a radio stations and held back from reaching a wider audience, as she discovered after seeing her FBI files in the early 1980s. Her many songs about indigenous peoples and include indigenous people and issues include Starwalker, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, No No Kick Nash, Generation, Cho Cho Fire, Ki Sahigeden. Awasis, still, this love goes on, eagle man, charging woman, native North American child, now that the buffalo's gone, soldier blue, and my country, tis of thy people, you're dying. She rewrote the latter song to reflect specifically Canadian issues and sang it in Ottawa at the closing day of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. Although mostly known for her music, St. Marie became involved in both education and film in the late 1960s, where she appeared in a 1968 episode of the NBC series, The Virginian. She insisted that indigenous actors be cast in all indigenous parts. In 1969, she founded the Nihiwin Foundation partly to overcome the stereotyping of indigenous people in public media and education. St. Marie joined the cast of the popular children's television show Sesame Street in the late 1975 and appeared regularly in the program until 1980. That's pretty dope. She appeared on several CBC radio and TV shows, including Super, Super Special, Pascon, powwow and the many moods of saint marie she also composed the score for the film spirit of the wind the theme song for the cbc tv series spirit bay and several other film scores in the u.s saint marie enjoyed huge commercial success with the song up where we belong where she co-wrote with will jennings and then husband film composer jack nitsky 
The writing team for the song, which was featured in the hit film An Officer and a Gentleman, won an Academy Award, a BAFTA, and a Golden Globe for Best Original Song. The song was a platinum certified number one hit in the U.S. and later recorded as a duet by Cliff Richard and Anne Murray as well as by Celine Dion. St. Marie also wrote and performed the music for the film Where the Spirit Lives, which dealt with indigenous children being abducted and forced into residential schools. She voiced the Cheyenne character Kate Bighead in the TV movie Son of the Morning Star, which told the indigenous side of the Battle of Little Bighorn and appeared with Graham Greene in the 1993 movie The Broken Chain. I remember watching that. In 1996, Variety Special Up Where We Belong won her a Gemini Award. St. Marie has dedicated much of her life to education. After graduating with honors in Oriental Philosophy and Education from the U of Massachusetts, she obtained an honorary doctorate in fine arts from the same school 20 years later. She has taught music and digital art at the Saskatchewan Federal Indian College a.k.a. Um, the school I actually went to, York University Evergreen State College in Washington and the Institute for American Indian Arts in New Mexico. She founded the philanthropic nonprofit Fund Nihuin Foundation for Native American Education in 1969, and in 1996, she created the Cradle Board Teaching Project, which facilitates communication among indigenous and mainstream school children through the use of computer networking. St. Marie uses her multimedia skills to create a core curriculum based on indigenous cultural perspective and produced, directed, and appeared in Cradle Boards interactive multimedia CD-ROM, Science Through Native American Eyes. She has also been a spokesperson for the United Nations, Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, and gives speaking engagements and presentations about her career in philanthropic projects. St. Marie, fearless social commentary and advocating for indigenous issues both in her songs and in her life have earned her many devoted fans and the respect of her musical peers. Many of her songs from Universal Soldier to Until It's Time For You To Go and A Soulful Shade of Blue have been covered by hundreds of artists including Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, Jim Croce, Elvis Presley, Glenn Campbell, Cher, Barbie Darwin, and Indigo Girls and Nico Case. St. Marie has been an inspiration to many particular indigenous and female artists who have all who and has always to evolve creatively through her choice of instruments and recording technologies. I could probably go on about Buffy St. Marie forever. She's just led such an amazing career. And what I really appreciate with Tantu and Buffy St. Marie is that they refuse to sacrifice their identity um, for their work and they continue to advocate for the proper representation of indigenous people and our culture, our heritages, and our livelihood. Many people argue that politics shouldn't be brought into film, media, art, etc. But the simple reality of our existence as indigenous people is political. When the reality is they work so, 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 so hard to destroy us, to make us relics of the past, to kind of conform us and assimilate us into Western society. So the fact that we're still here 
is a political play in itself. Hey guys, I just want to say thank you for joining me for another episode of our Indigenous Connection show. Uh, we've run out of time, kind of wrapping up another portion of our Okamawa Square series. Honestly, I have no clue what episode we're on. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Does it really matter at this point? But we are... We spend so much time profiling the negativity that our women experience. I do want to take more time profiling our women, our change makers, our matriarchs. Um, we need to balance out the negative with the positive. We cannot just focus on our downfalls and our victimization. We are a proud people. We are here and we are making waves in society. Yes, society has kind of been designed to not allow us to... Um, rise to the top but yet we are here we are breaking those glass ceilings and we are creating change and we are kind of paving those paths for our future women leaders in history so thank you for joining me and we will catch up again soon take care of yourself and have a great week and that's the Indigenous Connection show for Andy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.